college and I took a litho course and like that was it upon like graining my first stone and like drawing and like the crayon marks and the touche and the flats I was like oh this is the shit Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gilzambrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skill levels. This is a great resource for the gig poster gang or folks who just want to develop their own fonts for screen printing and relief printed work. In celebration of the 105th year anniversary of the first edition's debut, the 25th edition of the Speedball textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' works, and innovative technique insights that's sure to inspire and appeal to scribes and enthusiasts across the spectrum of skill and experience. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Brian Wagner who you may know from their fantastic Instagram handle, Hedgebitch. We talk about going to Tamarind in the autumn of 2020 in the heart of the COVID pandemic, witchery and lithography, bootstrapping lithography back into your life after grad school, and rural queerness. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to cast a spell with Brian Wagner. Hi, Brian. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm really good. I'm so happy that you can join me today. Me too. I am so excited. (laughs) (laughs) It was so nice seeing you in Madison and getting to connect a little bit there and, well, getting to see everyone after so many years of pandemic. But yeah, but it was... I feel like I I know all these people from from internet land. And then like, especially with the pandemic, it was like, like multiverse. Right. Land, and now it's like, oh, all of these people are real people. <laughs> what are you doing out of my computer? Who let you out? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to having a chat about you and your work and your experiences and just having a good time talking prints. So yeah. as as you may know, if you've listened to basically any episode of the podcast ever, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. And I always say these are the who you are, where you are, what you do kind of kind of questions. Okay. Yeah. So I'm Brian Wagner. I am a printmaker and lithographer based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I did my Bachelor of Fine Arts in studio art with an emphasis in print and book arts at the Minnesota State University Moorhead and then took a year ish off in between graduating and applying for the Tamarin Institute and then just got back about a year ago-ish, June 2021 from the Tamarin Institute. And now I've just been, got a very small studio space and been making prints that way. Yeah. You 
came onto my radar when you accepted to Tamron. Tamron does their Instagram post where they're saying, like, here's all our, our people and saw you sort of appear through there and followed you. And since, as you say, you've been back in Minnesota, you've been doing just these beautiful, tiny little prints, these little intimate little lithos that are just are such little snippets of stories, it seems like. So I definitely want to talk about those, that experience of life after grad school, life after trade school on the other side. That transition, which I know is often a time when artists feel like they lose their footing a little bit because they've had all the resources to the resources that they can get. (laughs) But before we get into the now, let's step back into the past a little bit. And can you tell me where you grew up and and what role art played in that part of your life? I grew up in the the suburbs of Minneapolis, about 30 minutes southwest-ish in this little town called Shakopee, which is now not a very little town at all. Mm. But a lot of my time was spent as a young child. I my my mom grew up on a farm, and I'm I'm actually a twin. I have a twin brother, and so the grandparents were free babysitting. So my twin and I spent a lot of time on the farm with grandma and grandpa, and more so in the vicinity of the farm with grandma and grandpa, and then just like running barefoot through the the, the fields and the woods mm-hmm. of South Minnesota. Southwest, yeah. not really. It's like right, like South Central Minnesota, really. But my dad is a carpenter by trade, and he still has them hanging up in his um, his wood shop. There are these little, I think they're shim boards. They're only about like one inch by about five inches. But whenever I would be out in the workshop with him, he would give me like a carpenter's pencil, with one of the flat ones, and just let me draw. And I would draw cars and trees and normal kid things but on scraps of wood and I think he still has them hanging up in his workshop somewhere which is really funny and it's like Brian age six like that's great well um, those are going to be essential to your Smithsonian archive absolutely yes (laughs) they will appear in some sort of exhibition someday but yeah I was always a a pretty artistic child I, I still liked to run around. Shakopee is a, a, a river city, so the Minnesota River runs right through it. So I always had access to to some deep, deep woods and marshlands and that sort of thing, which I didn't think would be as formative in my art, but is mm. starting to make a resurgence recently. I was going to say, I feel like I'm seeing some of this in your current practice. You're talking about this farm and the rural space outside of it i've i've maybe even seen it pop up yeah yeah it's started to take a little bit of an interest as i've grown and as a as a queer non-binary artist i feel like it's important to my 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 identity as a person Mm. of these like formative years as a child running through the rural midwest for the most part but yeah my i grew up doodling and was very into nature and honestly could not have I, I did not care about sports <laughs> <laughs> my parents did try both my older siblings were were hockey players and as a as a Minnesota family like that's that's just what we do <laughs> but I was not really interested in sports we tried soccer it wasn't really my thing and then I actually <laughs> started playing piano I think when I was seven or eight Mm. and was very very musically interested and that was a lot of my focus throughout junior high into high school was 
music, I was, I was in band, I was in orchestra, I was in the pep band, I was in jazz band, I was in percussion ensemble, I was doing extracurricular lessons, I was at school at 6.45 in the morning for mm. rehearsals or to be in a practice room practicing. And I think in high school I took, in all honesty, I think I took one art class and it was a photography class. And then that was my artistic career in high school. I mean, I was I always carried a sketchbook with me, but I didn't really do a lot of art classes. Huh. And then when I graduated high school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had known since I was in like seventh or eighth grade that I was going to go to school and be a bassoon performance major. And that's mm-hmm. what I did for a little bit. And then it just didn't really quite, didn't really feel right. And I was being pushed towards, oh, well, you're a performance major, but you're not going to be playing in an orchestra. You're going to have to teach. And I just didn't really, it wasn't really what I thought I wanted. So I started off at the University of Minnesota Duluth. And then my twin was looking at transferring. And so I said, oh, why the hell not? We're basically codependent. So I transferred (laughs) with him to MSU Moorhead. And my first semester there, I was an art major with a focus on drawing. Drawing and illustration was where I got my start. And as a, I mean, that was what I was always doing as a kid into like I even with the music and everything else that I was doing, like I always was drawing something. And so drawing an illustration made sense. And then as you do, I think I had to take like an introductory printmaking course as like like outside credit for a drawing and illustration for my for my major. And I took a print class and I took it with Pat Vincent. And he was my first little intro into into the printmaking world. And the first two weeks, first, well, two, three weeks of the class, I, I was having a lot of fun because all of a sudden I was having this meld between my drawing and um, the graphic side of print that mm-hmm. I wasn't quite getting in like a drawing class because it was always like still lifes and nude modeling and that sort of thing. And I was like, okay, this is fine, but this isn't really the subject matter that I'm super interested in. And so print, all of a sudden, I could explore these different subject matters in in whatever way that I wanted to. But the first couple weeks of class were relief printing. And I have mad respect for relief printers. I am not one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I struggled so hard. Uh, Like, you think that there would have been a connection between my dad being a woodworker. Yeah, I kind of thought that's where this was going. And like, it's not like, I mean, I I was very drawn to like white line woodcut, white line relief carving, but it just, it was not quite the mark that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And then we did... I think we did a little bit of calligraphing. We did a little bit of screen printing. And I liked the ease of screen printing. And the layering was a little bit more immediate. And then we did dry point. And I really liked that because that was more illustrative, right? Right. Like I mean, that, that connection to the sketchbook um, life is, yes. is right there. Yeah. And I think we did, I think we did a polyplate litho section and that was fine but I was I I mean it's polyplate so I was like oh this is it can it can either go well or it cannot Mm. (laughs) and but then it was in that moment of between intaglio and polyplate that I was just like I think I want to be a print major and so I talked to Pat I was just like I think this is I think I want to switch to print like I think I want to switch out of illustration and into print and he's like well why don't you just hang on to the drawing and illustration major and just have a dual emphasis, like just do both for a little bit and see what you like. And I was like, okay. And so I added printmaking as an emphasis. 
And so I was a printmaking emphasis and drawing and an illustration emphasis. And then the next semester, it was it was a little bit bittersweet because, I mean, I do, I mean, shout out to Pat Vincent, uh, <laughs> that he really sparked my love for print. And then after my first semester of printmaking, he left MSU to go teach at Austin P University oh. and made a career change, which I'm very happy for him for doing. But then the next semester, I had Corinne Teed and, sh- and I took a litho course. And like, that was it. Upon graining my first stone and like like drawing and like the crayon marks and the touche and the flats. I was like, oh, this is the, (laughs) like, this is what I have been missing my entire life, both as a drawer and as like a newfound printmaker. I was like, well, why didn't we do this in intro? I would have, I would have like absolutely loved this. And, but it, it also like within my drawing, drawing practice, I finally was, oh, this is, this is the mark that I've been after. I felt like it was like my entire life, which I was only 21 at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is revolutionary. But it was like, oh, you're, so, you were so young. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, forget graphite, forget charcoal, forget pen and ink. I want to do litho. Yeah. And then that was it. No one could stop me from doing litho. It was, we had our assigned litho <laughs> and then I was working on three other lithos on the side. And then I think the next semester was a relief paper in book arts. And I do love book arts, but I, we, we kind of talked about how I feel about relief. And I think I did one other woodcut and then I was like, I'm just going to do letterpress. Like... <laughs> That was my way out of getting having to do a relief print. But then along with that class, outside of class time, I also had three other lithos going. And my yeah. professor was like, well, this is a relief class. And I was like, oh, this is just extracurricular. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's that's really where I think my, my lithography journey really like kicked off. Yeah. I could not get myself away from it. That's so beautiful. I feel like we're... We're so lucky to find something that can be such a calling in our lives when we do find it. I think there are people who live a 90 years and and never connect with something in the way that it sounds like you connect with Litho. Just hearing you talk about it, it's <laughs> like you're describing meeting a true love for the first time I, across the room. Like it was their hair. It was how they walked. Like it's, it's, it's like, it's there in it. It really feels like it's, you were, you were meant for it. And it, I mean, it's, I've, I've always had this, this affinity for antiquing and mm. like I grew up in kind of a thrifting household. Like we never really bought anything brand new. It was always like, well, we're going to go to the thrift store. And so then this, when I found out that litho is like this, like age old tech mm. obviously all of print is has this rich rich history but it just felt like the 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 process of reusing this stone just felt really intuitive to me because i was like mm. oh yeah this is this is just this is how i was raised we just reuse it you you grain it down and you draw something new yeah <laughs> yeah i i've been in print studios before when they've pulled out a stone that someone else needs to use or a publishing studio and they pulled out a stone someone else needs to use and there's just this stunning drawing on it and they they just they're so cavalier it's just like well here comes the grit but it's it has that i think there's there's something beautiful about that ephemerality of it and as you say the the reusing this idea that this stone has so many lives it's not like a block of wood or or a copper plate it's it it's gonna have this 
journey that it goes through with all touched by these different hands, by these different artists. And then one of my favorite things that was ever pointed out to me about Litho was from Elizabeth Jean Yance when she was like, it's alive. It was alive. Like they've got personalities and that has such a romance to it that I think is specific to Litho between the, the organic material and, and the fact that you spend all of this time on your image and then someone's going to just come by afterwards and scrape it away. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, God help whoever go on a date with me because <laughs> it's that, it's that age old dating question of like, well, what do you do? And it's yeah. like, well, get ready uh, because not only will I geek out about the art of litho, but I will sit there mm-hmm. for an hour and a half. And I will tell you about how these stones are alive. Yeah, And like, I get like a weird twitch in my eye, but I'm just like, it's lived a life and you can find these like <laughs> different sedimentary deposits in it. And they were quarried out of this specific quarry. And like, let me tell you like, about okay. Bavaria. Yeah. <laughs> yes. and, I'm just, and my dates are like, okay, I, like, oh, how did I stumble into? There was, there was a, a, a meme that shit posting printmaking or was it, oh, was it yes. printmaking shit posting? I can't remember their, their yeah. handle, but it, it has that, that I've, I've, went on a date and I talked about printmaking and they didn't call me back. The only thing I could think of is I didn't offer them enough information about printmaking. About printmaking yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really good. Cause it's, it's true. And, and I, I've often talked about on the podcast, how it feels like that there's something about printmaking that's in people's genes. Cause either, either you see it and you just do have that, darling, where have you been all my life reaction? Or you try and explain it to someone and they just glaze over. They just, oh, yes. it's just, why would you, why would you ever care about this? And it's so interesting to see that as someone who interfaces with the general public about printmaking through my work in commercial galleries over the last 10 years, and then also just being out in the world and you're at a party and someone will be like, Brenda has a podcast. <laughs> and you're like, oh, what's your podcast about? And I think it's a kind of similar to the date question of like, what do you do? And you're like, yep. okay, how much time do you have? How much <laughs> patience do you have? Yeah. So I understand. I definitely want to make sure that we get a chance to to talk about your Tamarind experience and decision to go there. And of course, being there in the pandemic, yes. being a a unique class in Tamarind yes. as well. But I just want to get out of the way. I really want to ask you about your Instagram handle because every time I see hedge bitch, I think it's someone who's like really snooty about someone else's landscaping. It's just like someone who's just like, like yeah, call that a topiary. Like, I don't know, but I, it's just so funny. And I'm like, is it a printmaking joke that I'm not getting? I love it, but I think about it and I haven't cracked the code. It is okay. I mean, I I love the new take on being snooty about topiary, and I think that <laughs> might be what I have to go with. But it is it is not print related, which is I mean, that's that's all that my Instagram is is yeah. print stuff. But I just I have not had the gall to change it. I think I have some litho related username Eved, yeah, just in case I ever decide to make the change. But at this point, I'm so attached to hedge bitch. I like when people are just like, what's your Instagram? They're like, let me write it down. I'm like, you're not going to have to. Like, <laughs> I'm like it's, it works for me. Um, you're not so, going to forget this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for 
all intents and purposes, I consider myself a witch. So, and there's a specific subsection of witchcraft that is called hedge witchery, which is solitary witchcraft. So practice when within and of yourself. And um, hedge witches are, are considered to be tenders of the hedge. So we, we kind of like oscillate between solitary and like s- stepping into whatever dimension you want to consider what we're living in right now. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of where it comes from. And hedge, hedge witches are also take on a lot of like the quality of, of a green witch. So a lot of like herbalism, a lot of plant based practice and if anyone has seen my apartment, they know I have <laughs> so many plants. I think I have like 60 to 70 house plants. Oh my gosh. At this point. And I, this is either going to be really cool to some people or really nerdy or maybe a little bit both, which is totally okay. Cause both that's kind can of be true. Both um, can be true. Yeah. So especially in the no- summers here in Minnesota, I spend a lot of time on the North shore here in Duluth actually, which is where I am right now. And I, there are some really, really amazing hiking areas up here. And I have, I think, three or four different copies of like wildflowers and where to find them, mm-hmm. like guides. Mm-hmm. And I am always plucking different wildflowers or plants that I find fascinating that I want to either incorporate into my work or just study. And it's kind of something that was sparked by by my mom she carries a pair of garden shears in her car and she will stop on the side of the highway and run down into the ditch and cut out flowers now whether that is a sustainable practice i'm not going to weigh in on that it's just how she is but that's kind of where it started and that kind of lends itself to like my head witchery which is Mm -hmm. where my instagram comes from beautiful beautiful (laughs) i love that yeah i have known people who are really into bonsai who have a similar practice of just stealing plants that they are drawn to and pro tip for for your mom if she wears a reflective vest while she does it no one will question it they'll just say she must be with the city she can just she tends to she tends to go in the middle of the night sometimes. <laughs> she's definitely taking me on. She's like, do you want to go on a walk? And it's like 1130 at night. And I'm like, yeah, sure. This is normal. And she like darts into somebody's yard real quick and comes back with a cutting. And I'm like, I don't think that's legal, but I'm not going to snitch. <laughs> I love it. You come by it honestly is what it yeah. sounds like. You definitely <laughs> come by it honestly. That's lovely. Cool. Okay. I just, I had to satisfy my, my curiosity. Yeah. And do you find that witchery and lithography feel like they're overlapping a little bit in terms of kind of ritual and hidden forces and Absolutely. ancient stones? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Like it makes me feel like an alchemist a little bit, mm-hmm. right? When you're like mixing up etches or you're, you're weeding through the tamarind manual and you're just like, well, what does this mean? And it feels like it was written by some crazed witch a century ago and you're trying to (laughs) decipher their 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 practice but i think it's i mean it's the part of lithography that i think is really really instinctual for me is that i like to say that i'm like a a a right-brained artist where i I obviously have this creative side but i am so list oriented a type i'm a double earth sign like Mm, i can't cozy i can't yes i can't i can't help myself but like be analytical and so to have lithography, you have these just like steps in the process feels really 
natural for me because I'm like, oh, you, there's one, and step one has the sub 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 steps of like, oh, you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you move on to step two, and then you do this and this. But it does feel really, especially when I'm like etching a stone. There was a, a a stone that I was etching, I think, down at Tamarind that just had this beautiful touche wash on it, and I think I spent about an hour and a half etching it. Mm. But I didn't mind because it's just me and the stone, and I've yeah. got my earbuds in. I'm listening to either podcast or I'm a huge classical music fan so mm. I'm either listening to WC or Shostakovich there's no in between <laughs> and so I'm just kind of like in my zone just spending time between myself and the stone or myself and the plate which does feel very akin to like my witch practice you know mm-hmm. yeah and that and that kind of particular focused concentration and yeah. I think I talked a little bit with Ali Norman about it too because she's of course does the etching and she gets to use the flame underneath the plate and do all of that too and and that she really has that feeling of of ritual is powerful ritual is something that humans need I think and something that we're kind of robbed of in contemporary society in the U.S. a lot of us if we don't come especially from a strong cultural tradition yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and it's I mean like one of one of my ex-boyfriends, I used to I would text him if I was going into like an etching session or a printing uh-huh. session. And I'd be like, hey, I am not gonna respond for like three hours. <laughs> and just be prepared because no, I will not be looking at my phone because yeah. I'm just going to be having this connection with whatever I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Well, you really can't just like send me a text every once in a while. And I'm like, I'll send you a text when I'm done printing. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't want like this is this is sacred to me. Yeah. Like it's it's I I don't like having the interruptions, mm-hmm. and I am I am kind of I, that like solid solitary part of my hedge witchery mm-hmm. definitely kind of transfers into both my printing practice and my artistic practice of like. Yeah. I do like to have a rather quiet environment. I kind of have my time alone, more or less, mm-hmm. or with a somebody helping me sponge and just have <laughs> that that time. Yeah. Just in that moment and more or less oblivious of the outside world. I heard an interview with a brain scientist kind of dude. As you can tell, I paid close <laughs> attention to his credentials, but it sounded legit. I'm sure I think it was on NPR. And he was saying that when we get interrupted, it takes us 23 minutes to get back to the level of oh, concentration wow. that we were at, which really surprised me because most people would think, oh, I don't know, like maybe two minutes to get back in. But if we're doing something creative and we get a text and we stop and we look at our phone, it actually takes over 20 minutes for the average person to get back to that level of focus that they had. So I think your practice of, of intentionally telling the outside world, this isn't the time for you. Yeah. I'm sure is brain scientist and I have yes. something in common. Are you a brain scientist, Brian? <laughs> I, so yeah, I think that's, that's a really good practice. And since I've, I've learned of that, I've tried to put my phone away or in another room or on do not disturb when I'm trying to do something that does require focus when before I just thought, Oh, I'm sure it's fine, but maybe it's not fine. Maybe we should yeah. have that that time. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of your, your print arc, your print story, I feel like we've gotten up to Tamarind basically. Yes. So what year was it that you, that you started at Tamarind? I started 2020. um, And so was the pandemic 
already on. So you already kind of knew going yeah. into it. I'm going to be having a different sort of experience. Yep. Yeah. So I started working on my application because again, very type A. I think <laughs> I started working on my application in July, 2019. Mm. And they're normally due like the first, second week of January. I was going to say, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, like I, I had, I had about a couple months out of school and then I was like, Nah, I want to. Yeah, <laughs> I want to go to Stanford. <laughs> and I knew it was something that I my last damn like three, two, three years of undergrad. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna like I'm gonna apply. And I think it was Christine Adams who tracked me down at SGCI in Dallas, mm. at Open Portfolio. And I think she was in the midst of either doing the first or the second year. I don't remember. But she found me and she's like, you're applying to Tamarind, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, if you think that's right, like, I guess so. And so I applied and I, it was a lot of work, just the application process of like, I think I had, and I shit you not, probably 60 different drafts of Mm. my, my like letter of intent. I was trying to figure out who would be the best reference, working on my resume, and then collecting images. They do ask that you submit a portfolio, but like, it's mostly to see that they, that mostly for them to see that you know how to print litho. Yeah. I'm not giving away some big Tamarind secret thing. <laughs> but I applied and then I was actually, I was waitlisted. So I think I was waitlisted somewhere in February. Mm-hmm. And Brandon Gunn is... I swear an angel on this earth. And he was just, he offered the like, well, we'd just love to see a little bit more of the collaborative experience. Like you're Mm. so just out of school, try and spend a little bit time working at High Point or another shop or just to get a little bit more of that under your belt. And I was like, okay, okay. And then I think like two weeks later was when, what was it? The date, March 13th of like COVID hitting and them being like, we're going to shut down for two weeks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I remember everything. those days. Yeah. Yes. And I was like, okay, so so much for working in a any sort of shop because they are all closed. How can I make this work? And so I had my own small studio set up and I was working on my own litho and I was trying to reach out to and figure out like, is there a way I can invite artists that I know and we can work from it or can I drop a stone off at their apartment like mm, can... mm-hmm. and then I think I sent an email to Brandon basically being like hey like I was just curious if the the summer workshop is going like if, if that's I haven't seen if that's been canceled or not but if it is like is that something that I could come participate in just to get a little bit under my mm-hmm. belt and he actually just he sent me an email back and I, I remember because I had accidentally locked myself out of my phone for about two days and I came back and had gotten this email from Brandon saying well yes we've canceled the summer workshop but we've had a spot open up and it's yours if you'd like it and I was ecstatic but this was about this time like end of May Mm-hmm. And so the pandemic, we were two months into the pandemic and I went, well, how, how the shit is this going to work? Yeah. Um, and then I was like, oh, damn, like I've got, I'm, I'm two months behind everybody else on finding housing and making this work. Mm-hmm. And do I have to quit my job? Like, yeah. <laughs> and I had been furloughed, but I was like, like, do I, 
Like how does, <laughs> and made it work. I found housing. And then I think about another week after that, I got another email from Brandon basically being like, Hey, so here's the deal. Like it was specifically, I think more so for some of the international students who were mm. having trouble with all of the borders being closed yeah. of we are going to give you the option to defer if you'd like to. And that kind of threw another wrench in the like, okay, well now I've been accepted, but do I, do I, do I defer another year? Do I go? Like, what am I, what am I doing? And so ultimately I decided to go and move down to Albuquerque, but I had to move down about three or four weeks earlier than I had planned because mm. we had to quarantine the two or three weeks before starting classes. So I was moved down to Albuquerque in the end of July. And then my That's mom. That's exactly what the, they did in the Great British Bake Off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and my mom drove the the 20 or so hours with me from Minnesota down to Albuquerque. And then my Tamarind journey began and I was ecstatic. I knew Alyssa Ebinger, who is doing the second year when I was down there, who she actually went to the same undergrad that I did a couple. Well, I'm really sorry, Alyssa, if you listen to this, I, I, I think you were 10 years before me or so. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to age you. That's not what I'm trying to do, I promise. But it was that was part of the decision that I had decided to go is because we knew of each other across internet land, but just to have a little bit of the home state down in Albuquerque, because that was the farthest that I had ever moved, was a, a big part of my decision. But then they, it was it was a bit of an odd year because there was only three of us when usually the class is at least at least six, <laughs> normally seven or eight. And it works best when there's even numbers because you're kind of always paired up with printer right, and sponsor, right, right. And you're switching between. So for us to be a class of three was... Little weird, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, you got to have this unique Tamarind experience, but still came out the other side with the Tamarind experience, yes. which is wonderful. Yes, and, and I would, I would not trade it for the world. Yeah. It, it really was like one of the best experiences of my life. With, I mean, it was amazing. It was absolutely exhausting and grueling and the hardest thing I have ever done, mm. but so worth it. Oh, that's so, so, cool so, so worth that's it. So cool to hear. Yeah. So I'm always curious for artists who are interested in the collaborative side of things, but also have their own practice as an individual artist, as the person doing the drawing and the printing. How does that fit into the way you see yourself as an artist and as a maker and kind of the different hats that you wear doing those different projects. Yeah. Upon graduating from Tamarind, I don't want to say that I had an identity crisis, but it was definitely this like newfound, do I like collaborative print? Do I not like collaborative print? And ultimately I do, I do really love collaborative mm. printing and finding that balance between collaborative work and my own practice was a little a little tricky, but the way that I look at it is when I'm in a collaboration, I am solely focused on the needs of the artist. Like, how mm. can I help this artist with what mark are they trying to make? What it, like what what are what are they trying to do with this print? Like, do we need to scrap this layer? Do we need to add a layer? Do we need to switch colors? 
for the first colors that we mixed, like the colors that were right in the first place, but we just needed to go on a journey. And my sole focus is making sure that they are happy and are, are getting what they need from me as a printer and as a lithographer. Now, being the type A sort of person that I am, <laughs> I am also just storing away little nuggets of information in my head of seeing how the, how they approach the medium because my practice as a lithographer, it's grown, uh, but I am, I'm so drawing heavy. But seeing how that they use these materials in a different way that I would have never thought of because I have this sanctity of like how <laughs> the quote-unquote correct way to use these materials, which is utter bullshit. Throw some of that out of the door and draw with the, the, the side of the crayon or stick your finger onto the stone, which right. is just like, like I just heard some of the lithographers gasp. But that's... I like to, yeah, like notice how how an artist who may or may not have experienced litho or experienced print like work with these new materials and kind of store that away from my, 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 either my own knowledge or to use in a future collaboration if an artist is trying to troubleshoot something. But I, I kind of have found that they, they do need to exist in separate planes between my artistic mm. practice and collaborative print. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. So it is very much sounds like getting into a different space and different motivation and different level of outcome expectation and, and yeah. all of that is that it's it's really different but of course i'm sure they in, inform each other too that what yeah. you learn you learn something in your own image making that you can then take with you into collaborative making yeah yeah and i mean there was a collaboration i did with an mfa student at tamarin her name is sarah Vite, and she had done a litho, I think maybe in her undergrad or maybe in graduate school by herself, but just was not a printmaker and just had a, had a hell of a time with it. But she can just use this, these like really beautiful, subtle tonal shifts. Mm. And it was one moment because a lot of the times if I'm in a collaboration, I have my own, my, my knowledge as an artist present, but it's, it's not about me. Right. Like it's not a like it's about the artist. It's about the print mm. in a collaboration. But she was she was just like, well, this is this is what I'm planning. This is the sort of image that I want to make. I've tried this before, but it didn't really succeed. And I was wondering if you have any like she's like, I know she's like, I've looked at your own work and she's like, you kind of have these same sort of subtle tonal mm. shifts that I'm after. And I want to know how you do it. And I was just like well, have you ever used a number seven litho crayon? Like, <laughs> and she was like, no. And I was like, okay, here you go. And I grained a stone, I think all the way down to like 320 or something, just so it was so smooth. And I gave her a number seven and she was like in love. Mm. And that's every so often my artistic knowledge does come up, but I, I, I try to keep it aside unless it's really, really needed because it's not about me. It's about yeah. the print. It's about me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Speaking of your personal practice, yes, how would you kind of describe where it is right now on the other side of, of the pandemic, of interstate moving, of, of getting the intensive litho training, doing a lot of collaborative work? And now, as you mentioned, being in a situation where you're 
printing small scale and using what you have? What, where yeah. are you right now with all that? Uh, right now, I I feel I feel pretty good. I I will say going from the beautiful beautiful shop that Tamarind is mm-hmm. to my little D- Dickerson combo press, <laughs> it's more or less of a, like it's it's my studio space is more or less in a garage. Mm. It was a bit of a it was a bit of a it was a bit of an adjustment, but here's 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 the way that I, I guess I look at it that like, I mean, as printmakers, I feel like we're almost like professional DIYers. Sometimes <laughs> we're always trying to find a way. And I am fortunate enough to have my own press, but within, I think literal days of being home from Tamarind, I was back into it and I was printing because I was just in this groove from printing down at Tamarind. I mean, you're printing oh, seven days a week sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like I was just like, I don't, I don't know how to, like it was synonymous with the <laughs> lifestyle. And so I think I was home and I drew a really quick plate, a quick little two layer litho and was like, I'm going to print. And I did mm. um, just because the tenacity I think was there. I'm a very determined, like I said, double earth sign. So it, it, it's, it's less than ideal, but, but it works. And I think that's at the end of the day, it works. Like if you can get a setup that works, like you don't need Brandon Gunn says it perfectly that really to print a litho, you need a stone, you, you need a press and you need a leather roller. Hell, you don't even technically really need a leather roller. Mm-hmm. If you have a brayer, that'll work. And I think that really like stuck with me. Yeah. I just, I love litho and there's like nothing that I feel like can come in my way. If I'm like, I want to print a litho, I'm going to figure out a way to print a litho. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing can, nothing can tear you apart. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah my personal, I've, I've started working on, on a little bit of a smaller scale, both because of the, the size of my workshop. Like my press bed is my press bed could, could potentially handle full sheet. It would be a stretch, but it's also just, I mean, it's resources. Yeah. Um, I, yes, I can print these lithos, but like, I mean, I am, I'm a working artist. I'm not, I don't have a lot of money mm-hmm. is, is the, is the truth. Yeah. So especially like this winter, it was like, well, I want to print litho and I don't want to waste all of my resources on printing one big one. So like, I'll cut this plate up and if I have these really smaller matrix, like matrix C's, then I can do more runs. I can do more colors. I can print more layers. I can print more litho. And so I started working at a smaller scale, both because of my space and monetarily. And it's the, the, the one tricky part about my, my current space is that the inside is, is heated. Thankfully here in Minnesota. That is, yeah. When you said garage and I knew it was in Minnesota, I was like, Oh honey, are you okay? (laughs) It is heated. Um, but I do not have water. So when it oh. comes to needing to grain a stone, it has to happen outside. And my graining, my graining sink is essentially one of those old like hospital carts or like lunch carts with like the, it's got a little bit of a lip. I think I found it on Facebook marketplace or something like that. And it was like 10 bucks just to take it away. And I was like, yeah, this is more than big enough for me to make a graining sink. And it's got a lower tray to it. And then the upper part, and it's got enough of a lip that it holds the water and the grit without all of it like gushing out. And I drilled a hole in it so that there's a, a 
pipe and a drain that goes down to a bucket to collect the water and separate it from the grit. And that's my graining setup, but I can only really grain from maybe May-ish to about October. Yeah. And then it just starts getting really cold and we have to shut off the water outside, otherwise our pipes freeze. So I also started printing at a smaller scale because, well, I had to I had to print off of plates and yeah. I can't reuse plates. So yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of the the context of your work and, and kind of what you're exploring, really early on in the interview you said something so intriguing about this intersection of queerness and rural middle America, which I think a casual observer of the United States might believe that that's a contradiction, but anyone who's been queer in the United States will know (laughs) queer people are everywhere, (laughs) everywhere. And that's part of what I have really loved about that is that it, it is kind of pushing back against that idea that's like, Queer people exist in major cities in June. Like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, of course, that's not the case. But I, anyway, I, I want to hear, of course, your thoughts on it and, and your reflections and how that manifests in your work. Yeah. Um, I got this. And I would, I mean, I'd like to preface this with like, this is, this is just my experience mm-hmm. as a queer individual going to a rather small state school. I never, there was, there was the battle of like going to school in a small town mm-hmm. in and of itself. But then I, I, I battled with faculty and my classmates of them being like, well, you say that your work is queer, but like how? Mm. And it was like, well, like it's, like, do I need to be drawing half-naked, able-bodied men for mm-hmm. you to believe that my work is queer? Or mm-hmm. can the fact that I am a queer individual making queer work just uh, it, inherently, it's queer? And I was working off of, towards the end of college a lot, I was very interested in, like, semiotics and the, the relationship of, 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 of text and imagery and the way that queer people communicate. And that is still it shows itself every once in a while in my in my my current body of work but right now i'm more so focused on more or less like these scenes that were so formative to me as uh, as a queer child growing up in i mean rural midwest it's synonymous with the well my work is i'm queer so my my work is inherently queer and being this child running through the woods that is inherently more or less queer because I was a cheer- queer child running through mm-hmm. the woods. And I'm very, very in- interested in, in, in that relationship and illustrating it. A lot of this, the, the scenes that I've been drawing are mostly from memory. Sadly, the, the area surrounding my grandmother's farm is slowly being encroached by developments as, as is what happens. Thankfully, her farm is more or less untouched. But I remember like sending my twin out when I was down at Tamarind and we were doing like a quick little one of the, the, the first projects for a semester. And I remember sending him out and I'm like, I just can't remember this. Can you like do what I'm talking oh, about? Like, can yeah. you go and take a picture of this for me? And he's like, yeah, I got like, we are of the same mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's that 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 interest in the queer existence and my queer memory 
Mm-hmm. And like the queer domesticity and what it's like, like living in and occupying these spaces that people are like, oh, well, that's a barn. Like queer people don't live there. Like, and it's just like, man, like... <laughs> It is 2022. Like, <laughs> barns are a straight building. I'm just telling you that right now. It's a straight They're building. Heterosexual and for heterosexuals only. Like, a no. barn is a cis building. I just you can tell by looking at it. Like it's just anyway. That's just a really funny idea. But I'm I'm also laughing in recognition too that like that is that is how people understand it. I think, and yeah. truly is 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 that idea of of queer spaces and straight spaces. And of course there's, there's certainly some truth in that, Yeah, but I think also like it's, it's a, it's a step beyond the binary to try and start to melt that and, and say a queer space is where there are queer people, which means literally everywhere. (laughs) Yes. And like, it's, obviously this is, this is something that we're, we're, we're used to as a society of like, like where queer, queer people exist and why they exist there. And historically, yes, we're going to find San Francisco is mm-hmm. going to have, these cities are going to have, and I mean, me, myself, I live in uptown Minneapolis because ultimately that is where I do feel more comfortable because of the tendency for queer individuals to more or less flock to those areas because there is lesser prejudice against us now not saying that it's not existent because it's an ever-going battle Mm -hmm. as we see for minority groups but that 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 tends to be the the i hate using this word but the norm right Mm -hmm. but the spaces that we that we live in that we inhabit regardless of whether they're rural or inner city or suburban or what have you they're they're in my eyes, meant to be reclaimed and lived mm-hmm. in by queer individuals, by whoever wants to live there. There's space, they're ever going spaces of transition and are often temporary and mm. ever changing. And there's there's something in that that I find really cohesive with my identity as a non-binary individual and my identity as a queer person to have it be ever shifting and changing and like it it's it's not always going to stay the same and i think to try and stay in that same spot is well madness but <laughs> more or less detri- de- detrimental like it, it it it's good to change right yeah yeah, yeah I, I i definitely connect with what you're saying as i as i enter my late 30s <laughs> I I feel like I can see that kind of in, in myself, this idea of, well, I know everything's changed for every generation before me, but how come things are changing in my generation? <laughs> and, and, and it's just, it's not necessarily that I, that I, I feel a, a resistance to it, but almost like a surprise, like truly like, oh, like this is different than it was when I was in high school, when I was an undergrad, when I was in my twenties. I mean, all of that. And it's this weird thing that is such a, I, mean, I was going to call it a flaw, but maybe it's, maybe it's actually just here to teach us a lot is every human being I know thinks whatever's happening, it's going to be the forever. And we consistently are surprised by change, despite the fact that it's the only actual consistent we've ever experienced. And it's, it's a lesson that we have to learn over and over again. And, and I think a lot of the resistance that you do see in people is, 
resistance just to the fact that this is different than what yes. I expected. And this is different than what I'm used to. And therefore I'm not here for it when yeah. we're and it's, I mean, I think specific, well, specifically at SGC, it was really, it was this year was phenomenal on a lot of just, I get to, I get to see these people in person again, but like it was a lot of my work. I, I really either had barely posted about or hadn't posted about and had it at SGC. And so it was, I didn't quite know what to expect or what people would think. Not that it matters what people think, but like, I was just so excited to be around other people. Mm. And the, the, the real heartwarming bit was having this little, this little prairie scene more or less that I had this little prairie litho that I had drawn and the sheer number of queer individuals mm. and other minority groups who were just like, this reminds me of my grandmother's farm or like this, this, I, this reminds me of this. And I'm just like, Oh, okay, good. I'm not the only, I'm not the only one. It was, it was a nice moment of, I guess, solidarity is the word I'm mm -hmm. looking for, but that's not quite right. But it was really, really just nice to see just to have that sort of bonding moment with someone who is just like, Oh, well, sometimes it can be really isolating and, to see other people have lived similar experiences mm. as this little rural child did. It's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, we're actually already have been chatting for an hour, which I can't oh, wow. believe. So I, I'm, I'm afraid of, I've come to the time where I have to ask you, where can people see your work? We talked about your wonderful Instagram handle, but yes. definitely shout out that again and, and see it and connect with it and get in touch with you. And yeah, where are you yeah. out there on the internet? Instagram is my main platform. I don't really, I think there's an old Tumblr that exists somewhere, <laughs> but good luck finding it because it is not tied to anything. <laughs> but Instagram is hedgebitch, spelled exactly like how it sounds. That is the easiest way to get in contact with me. I'm pretty, I, 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 will, I will try and answer you but again sometimes i am printing and mm -hmm. I, I am dead to the outside world and my my website is glitter queen but queen is spelled k-w-e-e-n dot com dot uh, com dot com great well glitterqueen.com we can definitely put links to all that in the show notes and yeah I, I i definitely understand i feel like this is as good a time as any to apologize to anyone who sent me a dm through the <laughs> hello print friend instagram and never heard from me because it's like <laughs> i think it's like once you get over a certain amount of followers like nine out of ten or more of those things in there is just weird spam and so it's just like that's just not the best way like if you need to tell me something important find my email please it's just yes. miranda at helloprintfriend.com because instagram is just a steaming trash pile of bots with one <laughs> or two actually nice people thrown in there and like i just don't i don't i wish i had the time to go through that but yeah it's oh man there's so so many lonely women who want to marry me in there and i just i or they say they want to chat and then they give mm -hmm. me a really like a really long link i need to click on it's just yeah, yeah. 
nope. sorry ladies this yeah. professional has other things to do a tangent but yeah thank you so much Brian for, for talking with me this has been really fun I feel like we could talk about litho and queerness forever which is just I mean who wants to talk about anything else truly <laughs> so yeah I'll, I'll let you when I've got a, a, a publication date and uh, yeah please stay in touch and hopefully yes. we can collaborate on something yes absolutely thank you yeah thanks so much have a beautiful rest of your afternoon you too give you give to tell have you ever seen those bumper stickers that say tell your dog i said hi yes i'm gonna ask you that tell your your sister's dog i said hi okay okay okay, okay. <laughs> okay. all right bye thank you bye yeah if you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content, like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor Timothy Pauschak digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if you've listened this far, you might just be that special kind of print friend who would leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to us if you did. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Peter Santa Maria, who you might know from his interweb handle attack Peter. He shares with us his story of growing up in Miami and finding refuge in pop culture where his folks were going through a pretty bad divorce, struggling to find his place in the fine art world before deciding to forge his own path, and the 13-year transition it took to being a full-time salaried artist. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.